At this time, I'd like to dismiss the children for Children's Church. Remember, this will be three years old up through fifth grade. I know the three through kindergarten will be with Miss Amy, and then the older kids, first through fifth, will be going with Pastor Nathan and Haley. So I'll give those kids a moment to make their way to the doors. Before we start into the text and they're leaving, uh, as they are leaving, I want to point out something that's available to you today. Uh, several months ago, it dawned on me that for many years now, I've been giving you an update on my daughter, Emma. However, I realize that many of you don't know Emma, you've never met Emma, and really don't know the story of what took place other than that she has been ill and we need to be praying for her. So I was able to put together uh, this booklet. It's called Emma's Story. It's about 12 pages long. It is just an overview. There are a lot of details and things that God has shown us and led us that I've not included in this. This is really just a summary. Uh, one day, if the Lord wills, I may go into detail on those things. But this is available to you. Kim Ditton helped me put it together. And through the generosity of some organizations in the church, it has been printed. So um, this is available today. Uh, it will be online at some point. We're working on getting the formatting put out. So uh, if you were willing to wait and view it through our website, it will be there. But Emma's story, this booklet is available for you to pick up. Today will be my last message in this series, Navigating a Changing Culture. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And I want to begin by making an analogy. It's recognized that in the world, one of the greatest works of art is that of the Sistine Chapel. Painted and finished by Michelangelo, it took him four years, many times laying upon his back to finish this masterpiece in the Sistine Chapel. But the chapel was not a museum. It was used. It was open daily and every night for people to come in and pray, which meant that candles were continuously burning. That meant those candles are emitting smoke. Soot and grime began to build up. Can you imagine what 400 years of soot and grime had accumulated on the Sistine Chapel? So in 1984, a 25-year project was begun to clean the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Now, many folks knew of Michelangelo's genius. I mean, you just look at it, and it's, it's truly a marvel to behold. However, there were critics that said, while he is good in composition, his color, well, he left a lot to be desired. That he didn't seem to color things as he ought to. They thought that until the Sistine Chapel was restored. This uh, picture doesn't give really anything because I have to turn it on. There we go. There we go. That is not uh, touched up in any way. The left was pre-restoration, the right post-restoration. Once it was cleaned up, you saw the magnificent colors, the beauty, the depth of the, the blues and the yellows that Michelangelo used. Now, here's the point of my analogy. Sex is a beautiful gift that God has given to humanity. But that gift has been distorted. If you will allow the soot of sin has covered its beauty... And it's been marred by selfishness. And this wonderful gift needs to be restored to the place that God intended it to be. It needs to be valued as God intended it. 
Now, the church's response to sex has been varied. On one hand, there are those who say, well, the church should not talk about the S word. That's not something we should be dealing with. We are proper. We talk about Jesus, but we don't talk about the S word. And so we keep quiet about it. But then there's another extreme. There's the extreme in the church that says, well, we just need to go along with what society says because after all, God wants everyone to be happy. So as people begin to explore sexual options, we should acquiesce and give our hearty approval to those desires. Let me be as clear as I can. We can go down neither of those roads. We cannot be quiet about sex. We can't ignore this issue. It's a gift that God has given, and if we turn our back on addressing sex and the hurt that has come about because of the misuse of this gift, we are negligent in our calling to be light in the world. Furthermore, the voice of the church should not be silent when our culture is shouting, shouting out about sex. Its presence is pervasive. Can't watch a movie or listen to a song without sex being introduced in some way. Furthermore, if you enter the wrong word in the search engine on your computer, you are going to see things that ought not to be seen ever. Silence on this issue is not an option. Neither is accepting the changes that have taken place in our culture. The changes that have taken place in our sexual ethics within our our culture have been seismic in nature. And it's creating an earthquake that threatens the very foundations of civilization. And I do not say that as hyperbola. When a society loses the basic distinctions between masculinity and femininity, male and female, and merges those differences, I'm not sure that that civilization can last. For when we ignore something as fundamental as male and female, how can we even communicate with a shared language? We must be light. We must offer the stability of God's word in a culture that is absolutely shaking with the misunderstandings of sex. So this morning we're going to talk about restoration. Restoring God's good good gift. And we're going to do this in three ways. We're going to deal with what the culture says. It's important for us to understand what the voices around us are saying. Because sometimes the voices are loud and in our face, but other times they are very subtle. And without realizing it, we may accept many of the lies and myths that are told in our culture. Furthermore, if we are to be evangelists and meet people at their point of need, we need to work to understand what that need is. So we'll take a look at what culture says. Then, unashamedly, we're going to look at what the Bible says. The Bible's our anchor. It will stand when the whole world is shaking. So we'll examine what the Bible says about this. And then finally, we'll touch on what the gospel brings this. The message of hope. When we start dealing with what our culture says, we need to recognize that sexual freedom is recognized as the greatest good in our world. In fact, to speak of anything that would seem to inhibit the free expression of one's sexuality will be akin to throwing someone in prison. It's viewed as one's inalienable right in our world to sleep with whomever they so choose. Now this freedom is built upon four myths, four lies, if you will. And the first is this. 
is that sex is simply something that is just biological or physical. It's nothing more and nothing less than a physiological exchange. Furthermore, many argue that it's simply a biological act that every animal does. This was codified in song in 1957 by the great Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Birds do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. And while I give Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong the benefit of the doubt, that thinking has taken root in our culture to say, you know what, we are simply human animals, so why not do what every animal does? To me, it's very problematic to take our ethical cues from animals. Because after all, aren't there some animals that eat their young? When you begin down the road of taking our ethical cues from the animal kingdom, we are on a slippery slope that will lead us, I fear, into areas we dare not venture. There's another myth that flows from this one. They're connected. If sex is just biological, just a, a physical interaction, then sex is really nothing. It's meaningless. Or some would say it's as meaningful as you want it to be. If you want it to be within the confines of an ongoing relationship, that's up to you. Or if you want it to be one night stands, that is your choice as long as you avoid any unintended consequences. So sex becomes nothing. The third myth goes to the other extreme. Sex is everything. This view goes to the other extreme of this continuum and says that sex is seen as the key to a full and satisfying life. Now no idea just appears out of nowhere. This idea circulated certainly ever since the fall in the garden. But in our culture today, it's actually built upon the ideas that were promoted by Dr. Wilhelm Reich. If you don't know that name, there's really no reason you should, unless you're a student of psychology. Then you would know that he was a student of Sigmund Freud. In 1936, Dr. Reich wrote a work entitled The Sexual Revolution, in which he stated, quote, The full sexual expression enables human beings to realize their full potentials and find gratification in life. In other words... If you want a full, gratifying life, you need to engage in your sexual desires. Because if you fulfill your desires, then most neuroses in our world would disappear. And the main idea is that without sex, you're incomplete, you're not whole. And this has led to a fourth myth that's connected to that, that sex is salvation. That language is not used loosely. In this myth, the answer to loneliness Despair, anxiety, depression is physical intimacy. Once again, this idea was formulated by a writer, a, a lady by the name of Margaret Sanger, whose work laid the foundation for Planned Parenthood when she wrote in her book, The Pivot of Civilization. Through sex, mankind may attain the greatest spiritual illumination which will transform the world, which will light up the only path to an earthly paradise. That's the language of salvation. That's church-type language, speaking of fulfillment. And this is playing upon the idea that Dr. Reich published by saying, if you engage in sex to, to, to allow your desires to be expressed uninhibited, then all the problems you face will begin to disappear. My question would be this. If that is true, that would mean that as a society grows more sexually promiscuous, and allows more sexual freedom, then would not depression, loneliness, and anxiety 
decrease. Any study will tell you that America is now the leading consumer of antidepressants and the leader in anxiety medications. Even as sexual freedoms have been expanded and promiscuity has risen, levels of depression and anxiety and stress have increased. So clearly, sex is not salvation. These are the myths that circulate in our world. And we must be prepared to answer these myths by understanding what the Scripture says. That's why we look at the beginning to Genesis chapter 2. Now, in Genesis 1, it is creation viewed through a telescope. It's wide. But a microscope is used in Genesis 2 to focus upon the creation of man and woman. So let's begin in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, don't be thrown off by the language of helper. There are some today in our world that would look at that and say, well, to refer to a woman as a helper is demeaning in some way. But I would remind you that very word helper is also used to describe God in the book of Psalms. I dare say we would not say that God is inferior to anything. So the task given to woman in creation is to simply display part of who God is with this specific calling. Continue in verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, there was no one that was complimentary to him that could come beside him to bring about what he was lacking. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, that is the Hebraic way of saying, wow, thank you, God. This is different from all the other parts of creation. And Lord, you outdid yourself. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The language that is used there shows the distinctiveness of male and female as well as the complementary nature of male and female. Man and woman are different, yet go together to create a whole. In fact, this is seen in the, the English where it talks about man and woman, it's even more pronounced in the Hebrew where the word man in verse 23 is the word ish and the word woman is ish-ah. It points to this complementary nature that is reflected in the physiological co components of male and female. Now notice how verse 24 begins. Therefore, because of the distinctiveness as well as the uniqueness of humanity, because they are made from one another, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A man shall leave his mother and his father. It doesn't mean abandon. 
Because they would still have the relationships with mom and dad. In fact, in the Old Testament, the families often lived in the same compound. So the relationship was not severed. But it's saying at this point, when a man enters into marriage, he forms his own family, of which for he is responsible. So he leaves his mother and father, not dependent upon them, and he holds fast to his wife. To hold fast means, the old King James says, cleave to, sticks to, forms a bond with his wife. That bond is described in verse 24 as becoming one flesh. The bond between husband and wife is made, strengthened, and continues through the one flesh union made through sex. This is crucial to understanding the value of sex. That bonding is not like the bonding that takes place with glue, where glue can dissolve over time and weaken and even fray. This is a bonding like being welded together. In fact, God made that to be part of the sexual experience. This is describing marriage and gives us the context for understanding how God intended for sexual expression to occur. So you could sum up these key points. God made humanity, both man and woman, in His image. Both are made in His image. Humanity is valuable to God. In Genesis 1 it says when God made man and woman, He saw that it was very good. And also, God created sex. It's His invention. And He created sex to be expressed and enjoyed in the context of marriage between a husband and his wife. This is the foundation for understanding why Sex matters. Why it is a serious thing. God loves man and woman. And he's very well aware of the harm that results when the gift of sex is open and used in the wrong way. You see, sex was sent meant by God to be used as the, the means of procreation. We are made in the image of God. And how is the image of God spread over the world? Through procreation. Through sex. Sex is the means by which God's image is made and brought into the world. So the same reason why abortion is wrong is the same reason as to why sex is valuable. Humanity is made in the image of God. Now, I recognize two things come up at this point. Some would say, well, talking about the Bible as our guide for sex and sex within marriage, that's just, just prudish. After all, I mean, that, that's just... That's just so dry. But I would remind you that God made sex and he made it also enjoyable. If you doubt that, read the book Song of Solomon. Do it in a quiet setting with your spouse. Want to do something crazy on Valentine's Day? Read the Song of Solomon. Enough said about that. Second thing is this. Some would say, well, how dare you try to inhibit our sexual freedom by referring to the Bible? But the truth is, is that everyone draws boundaries for sexual expression. Everyone does. There are certain acts and boundaries that even the non-believer draws. For example, one boundary that is often assumed by an unbelieving world is that of consent. That's a boundary. The world will say, well, for sex to take place, it has to be done by the consent of both parties. However, we've shown that is not something to be assumed. The hashtag MeToo movement has shown that there are those that abuse that. But it begs the question, why do you draw the line there? Why do you say that is a boundary that must be followed? 
For us, we say our boundary comes from our belief that sex was made by God and the Scripture is God's Word that gives us guidance. And part of that guidance is that humanity is valuable and so is the gift of sex. This value is demonstrated in the Scripture. I want to give you two examples. The value of humanity and the value of sex is seen in the sin that David committed against God when he slept with Bathsheba tells us in the book of Samuel that David didn't go to war with the other kings. He was on top of his palace and he looked out and he saw Bathsheba bathing on top of her roof. Now this was not a normal everyday activity for Bathsheba. More than likely she was engaging in the time of ritual purification because that time of the month had come and gone. But David sees her and he lusts after her. And because he is the king and he has power he summons her and he violates her. Thinking that he's gotten away with his act, the crime is covered over, he gets word that she's pregnant. Not wanting to be rocked by scandal, David decides to cover it up by inviting Uriah, her husband, to come in from the battlefield with the idea that he would sleep with his wife. She would get pregnant, or at least he could say, the child is Uriah's, but Uriah's man of integrity he refuses to to do that because his his brothers are still out there fighting so David has a good man killed murdered sin covered up until Nathan stands in front of him and says David you're the man you have sinned David confesses his sin and in his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51.4 he says against you, he's talking to the Lord, against you Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He sinned against God because Bathsheba was made in the image of God and like every human being she was valuable to God. And David had compounded this sin by not only abusing someone made in the image of God, but he had taken God's good gift of sex and he had manipulated it in a way that God did not intend. So he says, against you, O Lord, I sinned. Jesus shows the value of sex and the value of humanity when he said these words in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus said was and is revolutionary. He's saying adultery can take place in our hearts even if it never happens in our beds. Now this brings the question of what does it matter if I lust? What is, I mean, is that really a big deal what takes place in our, our minds? What does it matter what I do in the privacy of my own home? This is many a justification for pornography. What does it matter if I look at images? I'm not acting out on them after all. It's fine. I want to remind you that the word lust means wanting and imagining sex with someone who is not your husband or wife. Lusting after a person is seeking to use them as an object for your own gratification. Is seeking to take one who is valuable to God, made in the, His image, and compromising their sexual integrity. You are thereby demeaning something valuable to God in your thinking. Furthermore, we cannot separate heart and mind. God did not make us that way. 
What we think in our minds will be expressed in our actions and attitudes toward those around us. That's why as you see the continual increase of the use of pornography, you will continue to see women abused and objectified because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We cannot separate mind from thinking. So what Jesus said in Matthew 5 was a way of protecting our sexuality, a way of protecting his creation by reminding us that we are far more valuable than we realize. Sex is valuable because it creates a one flesh relationship it creates a bond between two people a bond that is more than just a physical connection neurologists have proven what was written in the book of Genesis about the idea of one flesh when you engage in sexual activity your brain produces chemicals that imprint that activity in your thinking and that is there it is there can it's not erased from your thinking and your actions it is imprinted so that you never just walk away. That's why sex outside of marriage is wrong and dangerous. Now I know many say, but love is enough. Why, why do you have to confine it within marriage? After all, if we love one another, what's the matter with expressing that love physically? In fact, that's a justification why many, even many believers choose to live together before marriage. Understand. That living together before marriage does not make the marriage stronger. It actually weakens it. Divorce rates are higher among those who live together before marriage than those who remain pure. Furthermore, you need to ask this question. Why does this person say they love me and are seeking to engage in the most intimate of all human activities without willing to commit legally to me? Tim Keller puts it like this. Every sex act is a uniting act. According to the Bible, it is radically dissonant to give your body to someone to whom you will not commit your whole life. I've had people say to me after I've performed a wedding ceremony, well, I don't know what the big deal is. That's just a, that marriage certificate, it's just a piece of paper. My response to them is this. Do you have a $100 bill? If you do, will you let me see it? Because I'm sure you won't mind if I rip it up. It's just a piece of paper, isn't it? And of course they say, no, 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 it's $100. It's got value. That marriage license has value because it states publicly and legally the commitment between a husband and his wife. The idea of leaving, recognized, and commitment. Furthermore, love can be used and misused in a lot of ways. It can be used as a selfish justification. One of the things about the scripture, when you read it, is you recognize it does not gloss over the sins of those who, who dwell in its pages. David had a son by the name of Amnon. And the scripture says that Amnon loved his half-sister Tamar. He loved her. And he desired her. He developed a plan because he loved her. He was going to fake being sick. And he requested that she make his favorite dish and bring to him because that would help him to feel better. When she brought the dish into his room, he ordered the servants to leave. And then Amnon raped her. He raped the half-sister that he loved. 
And then the scripture is very clear after that. He hated her. He despised her. He loved her. Fulfilled his desires. Then he hated her. We must be careful when we engage in sin in the name of love. The tragic thing is, is that circumstance that happened with Amnon and Tamar is played out tragically too often. And that's why when we understand that the direction and the gift of sex as God intended it, that we need to understand what the gospel brings. The gospel redeems, Jesus redeems sinners and sufferers. Sex is powerful. It's like a fire. A fire in the right boundary in a fireplace or in a camp setting is wonderful. You can warm by it. it it's relaxing. It's comforting. You can make s'mores over it. But what happens if that fire gets out of the fireplace? Or the fire moves beyond the boundaries of the rocks encircling it in the campfire? It destroys the house. It destroys the forest. Everyone in here has been burned in some way. Everyone. It might be that as a child you accidentally saw pornography on the computer and lust has been your fight every day. Others you may feel attracted towards someone of the same sex and you're not sure what to do with that. Or you may be, have been a victim of sexual abuse. The gospel offers grace to the sinner. If you are currently engaged in promiscuous activity, whether it be pornography on the computer or just giving in to the wild desires in your mind, understand that Jesus offers forgiveness. And he offers the power to break that cycle of sin and shame. You don't have to live defeated and hopeless. He died on the cross for that sin. He is the victor and he is your hope. So I implore you today to begin the process of healing your heart. The struggle with lust may never go away. But God gives the resources to live pure and to overcome that temptation. Don't engage in the fight alone. All sin loves secrecy. Sexual sin more than any other. Your flesh will tell you no one understands. And what will they think of you? If it comes out what you struggle with, understand this church is a place of healing and hope. We will walk together as sinners who have experienced the grace of God seeking wholeness. So repent. To the sufferer, and I have no doubt that many who hear this message fall in that category. You may have suffered sexual abuse and manipulation as a child. Someone that you trusted may have betrayed that trust and taken something from you that they had no right to take. Or it may be that as an adult, you have been abused by someone in a position of power that manipulates you and has taken God's good gift and wrecked it. Hear me today that Jesus does love you. He comes beside you. And he can tell you truly that he understands how you feel. Because he suffered as a victim of those in positions of power. 
And he was exposed, hung naked on a cross, shamefully. He offers healing. He offers the promise that justice will be done. I know many hurt because the person who perpetrated the sin against them, they've never been held to account. It is my firm belief that all will stand before God and answer one day. Trust the Lord. And hear the words of Jesus when he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gospel offers redemption and hope. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. I recognize the weightiness of this topic, but it's one that we have to address and I pray that we will move forward with a, a re-commitment to, to seeking sexual wholeness as God intended it. And that we will be able to articulate our, our views toward the world around us that has bought into myths that are bringing about its own destruction. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. Meant to be enjoyed between a husband and his wife in the context of marriage. Heavenly Father, we confess our need for you. Lord, it's easy to look at the world around us. And Lord, while we're busy looking at the specks in their eyes, we are, are guilty of ignoring the plank in ours. So Father, help us. You know our brokenness. You know the times when we have sinned against you with a high-handed intent where we know what we're doing is wrong, but Lord, we do it anyway. Have mercy upon us. Forgive us. Set us free. Direct our minds to a greater joy, a greater good, that the Lord Jesus. And Father, for those that are hurting because of the sin of others, I pray for healing. I pray for hope. I pray that they will know the love of Jesus their Savior. For it is in His name that I pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together as we respond and sing about the one who took all 